Hey everyone, this is Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to Cape Up. Now, as the president of Save the Children Action Network, Mark Shriver's job is to ensure that childhood poverty comes as close to the front burner as possible. But he's having no luck getting through to President-elect Donald Trump. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that we're going to get in and have conversations. But it was the conversation about his two books, one on his father, the great Sergeant Shriver, who, among other things, created the Peace Corps, and the other on Pope Francis that elicited the most revealing responses. Listen to what this sign of two prominent public service families has to say about them and what it's like being a dark-haired version of his uncle, the late President John F. Kennedy. Mark Shriver. Welcome to Cape Up. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. I'm Always really, a pleasure to be with you. I am really glad that that you are here. There is a lot to talk about that I want to talk about politics to start. Um, you are, and correct me if I'm wrong, are you president of Save the Children USA or president of Save the Children Action Network, both? Save the Children Action Network. I'm the president of that organization. It's a 501c4 that Save the Children created about three and a half years ago. We needed to be more active in the political arena, and that's what the 501c4 allows us to do. It allows us to mobilize, to educate, to use communication strategically to pursue great policies, but also to engage in the political arena, to actually endorse candidates, to say that certain candidate X is good for children and good on children's issues, or to be opposed to people who are not strong on early childhood education, on saving babies and mothers' lives all around the world. So that's what Save the Children Action Network does, and I'm the president of it. And so given the election that we just we just went through, and you had um, now President-elect Donald Trump against former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, those two candidates, did either of them address the issues, any of the issues you just talked about, or any other issues that you care about to save the save the children action networks satisfaction well i think you know clearly over the course of a year and a half of interacting with these candidates we sponsored a show a television show up in manchester new hampshire called conversations with the candidates uh, so every candidate whether it was secretary clinton or uh, President-elect Trump uh, got asked questions about early childhood education here in the U.S. and about the issue of maternal child health internationally. Um, Secretary Clinton had great answers on both of those issues. Um, President-elect Trump was a little, frankly, more vague on this. His policies were not as strong as uh, Secretary Clinton's, so we're going to have to work, and we're already working on both Capitol Hill and with the transition team to try to get those meetings and talk about child care. Uh, talk about early childhood education, talk about maternal and child health internationally. Uh, President-elect Trump, you know, talked about children a little bit and has an issue with women voters. And I think this is an opportunity uh, for him to, to make headway on, on, the, on both of these issues. You said earlier that Trump was more vague when he came to the, the Manchester, New Hampshire uh, forum that you did with the candidates. Is it that he was he was vague because he really didn't have any policies or vague because he couldn't articulate whatever policies he had? Well, I think, you know, this was a year ago. This is the beginning mm-hmm. of the campaign. He was one of the first candidates through. Um, and I think, you know, when we asked him about early childhood education, he said, yes, I'm in favor of it. It's really important that we educate folks and little kids early. So does that mean we expand child care tax credit? Does it mean we invest more in Head Start? Does it mean we invest more in early Head Start? Do we invest in... 
uh, home visiting programs. You know, that's the array of services mm-hmm. that happen in those first five years of life. And the answer is we never got those details. Um, so now the hard work of governing, uh, that's the stage we're at. And we've got to have conversations with his administration and uh, with his transition team first. And we're having you know issues trying to get in and have those conversations. I was just about to ask, your, your verb usage there raised a red flag that you're trying to get in touch with the transition team to talk about these issues. Is it that you can't get your phone calls returned or you don't know who exactly to call? Well, I think you've seen it in the last two weeks. There's been a lot of upheaval in the transition team. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that we're going to get in and have conversations. So, so let's say you finally do get in touch with the transition team. What are some of the items on that agenda that you hope a then-President Trump would tackle? Well, I think the first thing is we know that child care, early childhood education, uh, and the international issue of maternal and child health, where 15,000 kids are dying every day before their fifth birthday, most of them from preventable diseases, 800 mothers dying every day in the childbirth process. I don't think those are going to be the top three or four issues Mm -hmm. for President-elect Trump. Uh, We want to have conversations, and we want to, you know, you know better than I, that there's a division of power, there's separation of powers on Capitol Hill. The Congress has a say in this. Um, So we're talking to allies and folks that we've worked with on both sides of the aisle. It's going to be tough. It's going to be tough when President Trump is talking about huge investments in infrastructure, when he is talking about tax breaks for businesses and individuals, and he's talking about maintaining or increasing funding for uh, fighting ISIS, for homeland security. Um, So something's going to the math doesn't add up. Mm-hmm. Um, so usually it's kids, it's poor kids, it's the vulnerable that lose funding. So we've got a lot of work cut out for us. Uh, but we want to have those conversations. We want to be at the table. Um, but oftentimes we get those issues get cut. So. You know, have you a lot of people since since election day? There have been a lot of people who have been concerned now that. Uh, Donald Trump is president-elect, that a lot of the rhetoric from the campaign trail is going to become actual U.S. policy. After Election Day, did you hear from from any of those folks who were expressing uh, concern that the agenda and the goals and the ideals that they're fighting for are going to go nowhere? Absolutely. I mean, you know, people are concerned. Um, but... You know, my father uh, gave a speech in 1968 in which he said, you know, we're wringing our hands and we're moaning about the country being in a crisis. And he said, I'm paraphrasing, he said, of course we're in a crisis. We've always been in a crisis. And we ought to thank God we are in a crisis because like a piece of steel, it has something that will test us. We're, you know, this is a tough time uh, for a lot of people in this country. Question is, are we going to moan and wring our hands and get in the fetal position or are we going to you know, get in the arena, like Teddy Roosevelt said, and get bloodied and beaten and get the dust and dirt kicked on us and stay engaged? And I think you know, what I said to our staff and to what I said to other folks I've talked to is, look, we have the option of quitting and going and finding a new job. Or we can double down our efforts at Save the Children Action Network, say that our children are really the most important resource that we have as a country, and get engaged in the political arena and stay engaged and push ahead. And, you know, we're going with the latter. Considering that almost half of the American people didn't vote um, and just how demoralized the other half, other half of the country that did vote and voted for Secretary Clinton 
the fact that she lost. Do you think that there is the appetite for the battle, for staying vigilant, to keep going for four years, maybe eight years? Do I think there's the appetite? I think people, you know, went through a number of different emotions in the last two weeks. You know, there was the stunned reaction. There was the sadness. There's the grieving process. I mean, I'm not an expert on the emotional stage people go through. <laughs> uh, but the bottom line is there are good uh, Republican leaders on the issues that we care about, and there are good Democratic leaders. And the problem for kids' issues is it's not the number one issue. It's not in the top five or six. There isn't that kind of passion you have as you have over the state of Israel or gay rights or gun control or abortion. Um, you know, kids suffer from benign neglect, if you will. And we want to be the NRA for kids. We want to be an entity that has grassroots mobilization and has uh, some sway at the ballot box. And that takes time. We realize that. We, we know we're not there. Uh, but we want to, you know, as I said, double down on our efforts mm-hmm. and push ahead. You know, I love how you just sort of throw out there, you know, as my father, as my father said, your father, for those who m- might not know, was the great Sergeant Shriver. And he was the, the creator of the Peace Corps. He led or was the creator of President Johnson's war on poverty. We're, we're not talking about an insignificant man here. Well, thank you. No, I didn't think he was <laughs> insignificant on a number of fronts. And as a great public servant as he was, he was an even better father. I mean, he was really there on a consistent basis. He and my mom were, they set great examples. They went to mass on a daily basis. And whether you're Catholic or not religious, you know, he acknowledged he wasn't God and he needed help. And that's a great example, I think, for all of us that he believed you have to work together, uh, work with Democrats and Republicans. So he was a great example. Yeah, he lived he he lived his beliefs both professionally and personally. I mean, you wrote a book uh, about your dad. The title is A Good Man Rediscovering My Father, Sergeant Shriver. And it was a very it's a very sweet book. And matter of full disclosure, I helped with the cover design. Yes, you did. <laughs> but, you know, one of the things that when your um, when your father passed. Um, you did me the great honor of inviting me to the memorial service. And the thing that I came away with was not only was your father more great than I had read or known, but you really learned the number of people who came up and talked about him, the number of people who jam-packed themselves in, in the church in Maryland just to be there, people who knew him well, people who didn't know him but knew his history, knew what he did, yes. did for this country. Um, he's your dad, and you have obviously a strong personal connection to him. But on that day and through, and through his life until the end, how did it make you feel to see the impact and import he had on so many people's lives? Well, I think, you know, he was in a unique position in time, uh, given the opportunity to start the Peace Corps from scratch, given the opportunity to start the War on Poverty from scratch. It's amazing. And, you know, obviously it was a huge honor for Vice President Biden to speak at his funeral mm-hmm. for President, Steve, yeah, President Clinton, Clinton Stevie Wonder sang, you know, Bono sang, Oprah's there. But what really touched me was not all the big shots, but the fact that, you know, the guy who helped him through security when he had Alzheimer's um, at American Airlines, 
you know, he waited in line at the wake to tell me my dad was a good man. The woman who served him breakfast uh, down on 13th and G for a number of years, uh, she showed up, uh, Jean Wilson, um, and just said, you know, your father was a good man. He was always so polite and nice to me. So I think, you know, to be able to have big shots like the Cardinal celebrate your funeral mass and all these big shots there is one level. But to treat people that aren't big shots with the same dignity and the same focus as a human being, that's the real test. Mm-hmm. Um, that he was as good to Gene Wilson when she was serving him a, a tuna fish sandwich as he was to Cardinal Whirl and having a conversation. And you don't see that very often in Washington. It's hard. Uh, but he treated everybody the same, and that's what's really important. That was that's what I learned most from him. And did you ever, when you were a kid, or any of your your siblings, maybe Maria, <laughs> when you guys were growing up, who didn't live out those ideals and got a stern talking to, or maybe a pop upside the head from mom or dad? Yeah, well, my folks never popped us upside the head. It may have happened, you know, verbally. But they never really put pressure on us. What they said is, you know, you, you could just tell by the, what they were doing that they were into what they were doing. I don't think they ever thought they were going to work. I think they mm-hmm. thought they were having an opportunity to make a difference that day in some small way. And maybe that added up over time. Uh, so I think the joy that they exhibited, even when they were sad or sick, the fact that they were still joy-filled, which is different than being happy, mm-hmm. I think they really thought that each day was an opportunity uh, to, as corny as it sounds, spread a little hope, a little love. Uh, and I think when you see that as a kid, you want to do something that makes a difference, mm-hmm. that you want to get up and you got to go to work. And it wasn't you got to go to work because you, you're being guilted into it. It was because today's an opportunity to make a difference. And so given what you said about seeing your parents not being just joyful but joy-filled, if they were here right now, given the the environment that we're in, sort of, and they were Democrats, and uh, given sort of the despair that seems to have swept Democrats and swept, swept the country, what's the one piece of advice you think they would, would tell the country and tell the party um, to help them through? I think what they would say is keep pushing. Stay engaged. I mean, don't, you know, as that line I I quoted the other day about, uh, or the other minute about my father saying that the country is in a state of crisis, he's right. Mm -hmm. You got to stay engaged in the arena. Uh, I mean, democracy, as you know, Jonathan, is a contact sport. It's a, you got to exchange ideas. I think the difference is that there isn't the level of personal attacks in the past. You know, my father worked with Governor Romney of Michigan, Mitt Romney's dad. He worked with Reagan and the Bush family. Um, they worked across the aisles. They didn't agree on every issue, and they disagreed on certain fronts, undoubtedly. But they also found common area to work together, and I think that's a big difference. And you see that with Senator Ted Kennedy and working with Orrin Hatch and, and working with Lindsey Graham. I mean, these were people that were understood that the system is built on some compromise but trying to move the country forward, and I think they— would talk about staying engaged and trying to find common ground. You know, um, one uh, book that you wrote, your most recent book, you didn't um, consult me on the, on the cover, but it, it's, a, it's a beautiful cover. Thank and more you. importantly, it's the subject. And that is Pope Francis. And the title of the book is Pilgrimage, My Search for the Real Pope Francis. Why, after writing about your dad, Sergeant Shriver, you then turn to the to the new pope. What was it about Pope Francis that immediately 
captured your imagination? Well, I think the first time he came out in the public and he's on that balcony at St. Peter's and he asked people to bless him before he imparted his own blessing. I think the fact that he was dressed so much more simply than previous popes, the fact um, that he was a Jesuit, and I've been educated by the Jesuits, I think the fact that next morning you see him trying to pay his hotel bill. He gets in the bus with the other cardinals. There was a fact that he took the name Francis, which I couldn't believe no one had ever taken the name Francis, the saint who cared about the environment, who cared about the poor and the powerless. All of these little gestures, you know, piqued my interest. And then when he washed the feet of young criminals, really, mm-hmm. um, including a young, a young lady who's a Muslim, I worked with juvenile delinquents in Baltimore for six years. I've been in juvenile facilities. They call them training schools in Maryland in the old days. They're really juvenile jails. I, don't, I never would have had the guts to get on my knees and wash those kids' feet. And those things, you know, popped me in the face. I'm like, wow, is this a series of PR stunts that this guy is doing, or is he the real deal? So what I wanted to answer is the question is, who is this guy? And over the course of two and a half years, reading his homily, talking to, you know, hundreds of his friends and colleagues and detractors, I think I have a pretty good sense of who he is. And I think he is clearly the real deal. He was... Um, is consistently caring about poor people, about reaching out to Jews and to Muslims um, in Buenos Aires as he is today as Pope. And I think he's trying one person at a time uh, to reach out and show mercy and spread love, which is, again, a, a terrific example for me and I hope for others. Now, you had a time of it trying to do research on on the Pope, uh, including a trip to Argentina where you knew no one. I don't and speak, yet, uh, yeah. And yet you took the trip. I took the trip. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it was a little crazy. I've never been to Argentina. So I've been to Central America, never to South America. I don't speak Spanish. I don't know the history of Catholicism or Argentinian history. So it was an amazing trip, and I got incredibly lucky. I ended up, um, you know, meeting a guy uh, on a layover in Miami through my brother, whose friend was uh, out with him. And, and well, let, let's back up a bit. Yeah. You had a lay an eight hour layover in Miami, and yeah. your brother's like, "Hey, come on, let's go out on a boat." And you're like, "I gotta, I gotta study. I'm about to." You gotta read up on read the up pope. on the pope. He's yeah. like, "You read up on the pope on the plane. Let's go on the boat." And you get on this boat, and that's when you meet. I meet a guy who's a friend of Anthony's and my brother, and he's got a buddy. And his buddy, I say, "Where are you from?" He says, "Argentina." I said, "Wow, I'm going to Argentina right now." And he goes, "Where are you going?" Buenos Aires. I'm from Buenos Aires. If you need anybody in Buenos Aires, let me know. He says to me, and I said, "Well." I don't know anybody. Can you connect me with your brother? That would be great. And he goes, yeah, well, my brother is great friends with the mayor of Buenos Aires. And I'm like, wow, this is amazing. And he connected me with the mayor's chief of staff. And Marcos Pena, I had breakfast with him my second day there. And he said, you know, anything I can do to help you, I want to help. And I said, wow, so nice. And he goes, you knocked on my door when I was 12 years old (laughs) when you were running for the Maryland House of Delegates and you were nice to my parents. And I couldn't believe it. And he introduced me to all the folks who were friendly with the Pope, but also others who had had issues with the Pope. And he lined up, you know, 10 interviews for me. And it was an incredibly lucky, incredibly fortuitous meeting. Wow. And so the knocked on his door and the kid was he's now 30. He was 12 or something like that when I did it. It's an amazing stroke of luck. Wow. Well, you met all of these people folks who love Pope Francis, or at the time, he, in, when he was in Argentina. Cardinal in, Bergoglio. Cardinal Bergoglio. But the detractors. I'm curious about the detractors. What, do, what don't they like or didn't they like 
about the then cardinal? Well, the book uh, that I wrote, Pilgrimage, uh, My Search for the Real Pope Francis, starts when Pope Francis was in Cordoba, which is a city in the interior of Argentina, where he was sent for two years, really exiled, uh, because he was young, running the Jesuits, which is an incredible position to have, but he had it at 36, and it was the beginning of the Dirty War. And he was very authoritarian by his own admission. He was very, he didn't consult folks on his decisions. He was very strict. And I think that, I I know it caused a huge rift in the Argentinian society of the Jesuits. And there was a lot of what uh, is known as liberation theology, which was a way for the Catholic Church to be engaged in social justice issues. And he had a different interpretation of how the church should be involved in it. And it caused a huge rift. Uh, in Argentina. And I think half the folks were very much supportive of him, the other half very much opposed. And he caused deep divisions and a lot of pain. So he was exiled uh, and spent two years in what he called a deep interior crisis. And when he came out of that in 1992, he was made an auxiliary bishop. Um, And that's, you know, slowly you see him changing the way he interacts with people. And then there was a series of events in Buenos Aires, the bombing of the Jewish embassy in 92, the bombing of the Jewish community center in 94. And you see these actions and and his actions to reach out to Jews, to reach out to parents who had lost their children in uh, fires and in various other calamities that hit the city. And that's really the real Pope Francis. So then you ended up meeting Pope Francis. Well, you're going to ruin the book. So the answer. Oh, did is, I, I ruin the book? Well, you're gonna ruin it, but uh, well, it's it's maybe I maybe I met him, maybe I didn't. Oh, the, the okay, answer maybe is you didn't. I tried I like know. crazy to get the interview. I know too much. That's the problem. Yeah. is that I know I know too much. You tried like crazy to get the interview yeah. with Pope Francis, and that entailed what? It entailed you know what everybody in Washington does. You call somebody who you think knows the Pope, and then that person calls somebody else, and you try to get a meeting with them, just like I'm trying to do with Donald Trump's transition team. (laughs) And ultimately, the real question is, should he take in the interview? Because the book is about him. And he's about faith. He's about mercy. And he's ultimately, his boss is Jesus. And he doesn't want to talk about himself. So you have to read the book to find out how the interview went or whether it went at all. But the answer is, you know, should he have given me the interview? Well, look. And, and I don't what? know. And he, I'm not going to, should I tell the no, end? Don't, no, don't, don't, <laughs> don't tell the end. I'm just sitting, I'm, I'm a little incredulous because I remember when we talked about, about this book yes. at lunch um, now more than two and a half years ago, and you mentioned how, you know, I, I, would like to, I would like to interview the Pope. I'm not sure how I can get to him. And I looked at you and I said, Mark, you're a Shriver. You're a Kennedy. Your uncle was the first Catholic president of the United States. Right. There's no possible way you couldn't. Well, I'm getting all my verbs mixed up. There's no way that the Pope would not meet with you, would not grant you an audience, especially given that um, historical tie, but also given um, the family's social justice history, which you know, mirrors uh, and is exactly like the Pope's. And so I was just sort of sitting there thinking, you got to be kidding me. You really don't think right. you're going to be able to get an interview with the Pope. And the answer is that he has bigger and more important issues than worrying about some guy from America writing a book about him. And, you know, I tried. And the answer is he turned me down and he should have turned me down. And that was exactly, on pun reflection, the right answer. 
because he's, you know, worried about reaching out to prisoners and to homeless people and trying to show us all how to behave. And he's not worried about publicity about himself. So ultimately, I'm glad he turned me down because it showed exactly who he is. And uh, that's the focus on far more important things than a biography about him. It's not about, you know, St. Ignatius or the guy who started the Jesuits or about Jesus. The book is about him and he doesn't care about himself, which is a beautiful lesson, especially in Washington, where we all seem to care about our ego and our platform and our position. And he taught me in the process that that stuff's not relevant, that that stuff's not really what's important. What's important is taking care of your friends and your neighbors and, and people that aren't necessarily your friends and neighbors. So he taught me a good lesson. The whole book was a lesson, uh, but not done from a place of guilt or anger. It was done from a place of joy. When you read his stuff, when you see the way he lives, he's joy-filled as well uh, because he has his eyes on a different prize than, you know, I do. So it's, it's, a, good, it's a good lesson. So, Mark, your, your dad's Sergeant Shriver. Your mom is Eunice Shriver. Your uncle was president of the United States, John F. Kennedy. And while this is a podcast and no one can actually see you, to see you is to see a dark-haired version of your uncle. What on earth was that? has that been like for you personally to not only have the family name and the family history, but to also look like um, your, your famous and consequential uncle? I think, you know, growing up, there was never any stress or pressure on that for, for me. Uh, you know, there was never, my folks never said, hey, you're related to Uncle Jack and you got to do stuff or Uncle Teddy or any of that stuff. Or, you know, my father, mother never said I created the Peace Corps or I created Special Olympics. It was none of that stuff. As a matter of fact, if you tried, I would think, assume that if we even tried to talk about that, uh, you know, my folks would have said that's ridiculous. Uh, and I was blessed with a lot of great friends who, you know, kept it real, that were real human beings and never got enamored with all of that stuff. Um, you know, I get stopped sometimes. Somebody says, hey, you look like a Kennedy. I'm like, hey, you know, thanks a lot and kind of move on. So it's no big deal. Uh, it's, a, it's incredible, the humility that comes through in that answer. And also in when you were talking, talking about your dad, the incredible thing is when I asked you, how did your family teach you, your parents, your father, teach you um, the lessons that you embody? And there was no overt thing. It was just sort of they, they lived their lives. They, they set the example in you and your brothers and sisters. You just watched yeah. and, um, and took lessons from that, which is a very, a very powerful thing, both in, in the observations earlier and in the observations uh, just now about being a child of two legendary families and continuing the work that they did not out of a out of a sense of opportunism but out of a sense of duty and honor and country and faith and, and I, if i could just add to that it's not a, a sense out of you know guilt there's this whole thing called catholic guilt mm-hmm. and um you know i think it's really catholic it should be called catholic joy because it should come from a place of joy and for too often, for many of us, it comes from guilt or from, you know, obligation. And I think they saw their situation as a, as a way to joyfully do this work. And I don't think they saw it as work. 
Um, and I think as a kid, you get that vibe. You can pick it up, whether your parents are joy-filled. You know, my father got up every day well into his 70s and 80s and went to work. He'd hit the 7 a.m. mass downtown. He was out of the house at 6.15 in the morning. And he was excited. You know, he, was ex- he had energy, and I think he had incredible energy, and as did my mom. She went to 5 o'clock mass uh, every day, uh, you know, or 11 A.m. or p- p.m.? No, 5 p.m., 5 okay. p.m. You know, it depends on her schedule, but they, they did it because I think they, I, I know they realized they were not God. So when you see parents that are joy-filled and they need help every day, it's okay. You know, they realize they're not the end-all and the be-all. And it would be a good thing for, I think, all of us in this country to have a little bit more humility, to realize, you know, we're all sinners. We all got problems. It may not be financial, but it may be spiritual. It may be psychological. It may be physical. We've all got our issues, right? We've all made mistakes. And I think they realized that they needed help every day. And that's an important thing for me as a male in whatever this is, 2016, to realize you need help and uh, you need to rely on you know, your community in order to move everyone forward. I think that's what they did. And that's a pretty good example for a young kid. Or for a, a grown man who is continuing their work and their legacy in his, in his own way. Mark Schreiber, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. You know what? Do me a favor. Subscribe and then rate and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. 